Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Taylor Moore. And I'm Shireen Hamza. And we are here with Dr. Ronit Yualit-Talalim. Um, she is a senior lecturer in the history department at Goldsmiths University, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on the history of Asian medicine. She also teaches courses on the interactions between medicine and religion. She is the author of Reorienting Histories of Medicine, Encounters Along the Silk Roads, which is forthcoming with Bloomsbury Press. She is also the author of a number of articles and edited volumes on Galenic medicine in Asia, Tibetan medicine, and Eurasian traditions of medical knowledge more generally. Welcome to the podcast, Ronit. It's a pleasure to be here. We're actually recording today from the International Congress of Traditional Asian Medicines. It's their ninth international meeting, and a lot of the panels here are taking up this theme of transmission of medical knowledge across Eurasia. A lot of your work has looked at the interaction specifically between the Tibetan Empire and, say, the Abbasid Empire or other parts of the Islamic world in later periods, like the Ilkhanid Empire. Some of our listeners might be wondering, why is there a podcast about Tibet on the Ottoman History Podcast? Would you be able to answer that question? I mean, you, you also edited a whole volume called Islam in Tibet interactions across the musk roots. So how did you come to that project? A lot of people were wondering about the exact same question when I first proposed this project. Tibet is usually thought of in relationship to India and in relationship to China. But when you look at a map of Central Asia, or Asia more generally, in the 8th or 9th century, you see the Tibetan Empire, you see India, to the south of it, you see Tang, China, to the east of it, and the Abbasid Empire is on the western, uh, western borders of Tibet. So it seems only logical that there would be interactions. Um, I was working on a, a late Buddhist text that spoke a lot about uh, the Muslims, and whilst it was talking about Muslims as some kind of a, a threat. It was also expressing a lot of uh, knowledge about Islam and a lot of appreciation of um, knowledge coming from Islam. Could you tell us a little more about that text? What was it called and what were the kinds of references you found to Muslims in it? Uh, so the text is called the Kalachakra Tantra. It's a text that was composed um, in India, but then we have a Tibetan uh, translation. It talks about the great war that will come at the end of time, and that war will be between the Buddhists and the Muslims. It talks a lot about this idea of what will happen after the, the great war, uh, where people will um, abide in this realm called Shambhala, which we all know about. So this whole um, history of what Shambhala is, the references or the variations of it later into this theme called Shangri-La um, that it became very well known in the West. 
is something that I was intrigued by. But I was intrigued by this kind of double view of, of Islam and, and, and Muslims. When I was learning Tibetan, occasionally I would um, come across a word that I knew from Arabic and um, I, I would say to my teacher, oh, this is like in Arabic. And uh, I was told, oh, don't even think about it, which of <laughs> course made me think about it a lot more. So, so then I came up with this idea of um, that we should at least see what is there and um, explore the, the field. Um, and then I came to Professor Charles Burnett in the Warburg Institute, uh, and he was very enthusiastic about uh, the idea. Um, and so um, we wrote this proposal and got a grant to to do this um, project. And we were very lucky also to be able to hire Anna Akasoy, who's a wonderful Islamicist. Um, so the idea re was really to work together um, and look at sources coming from the Tibetan world and from the Islamic world and see what kind of connections we are able to, to see. Yeah, so in general, I think when we look at projects like this, it's um, a great way to look at transmissions when you have a number of people working across different languages. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a great model that's very much developed in um, in Europe. Thank you for that. And we have um, heard a lot of similar collaborative projects happening at our conference in Kiel. So as you've mentioned, Islam engendered these particular social and cultural connections across Eurasia, um, but it also facilitated particular material connections as well. The subtitle of your edited volume is Interactions Across the Musk Roots. We've heard of the Silk Road, but what are the Musk Roots? So when we were working on the Islam in Tibet project, we found um, a lot of um, Islamic sources talking about Tibet as the land of Musk. Um, these appear really early on from the 8th century onwards. So Musk, we all know um, what Musk scents, or um, you can um, buy Musk uh, as a perfume, but uh, yeah, few people know where musk comes from, actually. So it comes from a, a gland of a deer, the musk deer, mm -hmm. um, that grows in Tibet. And you have to basically kill the, this poor uh, musk deer in order to extract the essence of the musk gland. Uh, yes, uh, which is why it was so expensive mm. and now forbidden, by the way. Okay. Um, so any musk that you buy now is yeah questionable in many uh, on many grounds. Um, they do try to farm it in some places of the world, but that again is yeah hugely cruel to the animal. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that's where musk uh, comes from. And um, musk became a really important, um, not just perfume, but a kind of metaphor of something desired. And so it appears in geographical text, in religious text, and then in medical texts, of course, as well. Um, so as a kind of cure-all, super drug. Mm. Um, and then that 
fuels the imagination about Tibet as the land of musk. Um, and we find it also in um, travelers' reports and um, yeah, similar similar sources. So as a metaphor of um, the exchanges, we found that this brings um, close to home this Islam and Tibet interaction. Looking more generally, and, and especially in the work that I've done since, and um, working on um, medical manuscripts that were found on the Silk Road, I have come to look at the Silk Road in a in a larger sense. So we usually t think of the Silk Road as the interactions between China and and Greece, um, but when um, uh, we look more closely at the kind of material that we find on the Silk Road, and um, the particularly the studies of um, Valerie Hansen, who published a, a couple of years ago this book um, on the Silk Roads, we see that the um, the interactions happened on a very small scale from um, station to station, and that brings um, closer to home the the idea that we needn't look at, at the termini point, so not uh, China and Greece, but look at everything that's happening in between, and thereby um, the, the, the really important languages and cultures to look at these interactions yeah. are Arabic and Persian um, and Tibetan and Uyghur and wow. Sogdian. Yeah. Um, so, so um, this is the focus of uh, the kind of things I, I work on um, now and saying, actually, we need to look at the in-between. Another fascinating project that you have worked on to look at the transmission of medicine across the regions in-between, as you say, China and Greece, is looking at the appearance of Galen, uh, an ancient Greek medical authority who listeners may be familiar with, someone who's you know, equally revered in Europe and other parts of the world where, quote-unquote, Western medicine is practiced. Galen and uh, references to him come up in Tibetan texts. Could you tell us more about that project? I was really fascinated to, um, to find these Tibetan medical um, histories that talk about Galen, um, who we know from, from second century Greece, um, coming to um, Lhasa and settling in Lhasa and setting up a school and um, teaching his sons and so on and so forth. So this kind of narrative appears um, in many Tibetan medical histories. More generally, Tibetan medicine is described as um, having input from the this Galenos, so representing a kind of Greco-Arabo-Persian link, um, and then there's an Indian link and a, a Chinese uh, link. And in these narratives, the, the Chinese person um, and the Indian person are both legendary mm. people. Well, not people, legendary figures. Mm -hmm. And then Galen um, coming from the West What's interesting is that the, both the Indian and the, the Chinese figures are then sent away by the king, and it is Galen that settles. Um, so uh, I was really curious about what, 
what sense can we make of this narrative and what does it really mean? Obviously, it's not the historical Galen that traveled to Lhasa and, and settled in Tibet. Around when would uh, do these narratives appear? Um, so these narratives are, appear very late. Um, they refer to the very origins of Tibetan medicine, which is linked to around the 8th century, but they are written in the 15th century. So my argument is that they reflect more the period that they were written in rather than the period that they're written about, something that we often find in historical narratives. Um, and so at this point, the importance of um, Greco-Persio-Arabic um, medicine it can be coming already from many different areas, one of them being India. Um, so um, they reflect more the time that they are written in rather than the time they are supposedly written about. Uh, just an interesting aside here. I can't direct you to any published materials, but I was just looking at a 15th century figure, uh, Musa ibn Muhammad ibn Musa, who also writes about Galen and mythological figures like Asclepius and Hermes as people um, and writes about them in this origin story of medicine. This is material that is uh, that historians of medicine of the Islamic world will know exists in Ibn Abi Usayba's um, biographies of physicians or classes of physicians, Tabakatul Atibba, and it even goes earlier to the period of Abbasid translations. But what you're saying about um, it traveling further and further east, I think uh, the more people look into this, they will find more and more sources about this history of medicine. And it's just fascinating to hear the way that it makes it all the way to Tibet. Can I add a little aside sure. to that? <laughs> <laughs> the, the project I'm working on right now concerns a Hebrew medical text. When and where it was composed is a big question, but um, and has been a, a huge enigma, which I think I've finally cracked. Um, and I've placed it around the eighth century in the Persian, um, some kind of Persian culture milieu, and it has a similar narrative, um, a really fascinating narrative that I'm going to be talking on on Friday. Um, but that that um that kind of narrative um yeah appears throughout um throughout cultures and has been as you said uh, ignored pretty much by historians of medicine because it's so called mythical mm -hmm. but these um mythical stories actually tell us a lot about what what those writers wanted to link themselves with uh, where they placed uh, themselves, often um, they have a social implication as well in terms of the role of medicine, in terms of the the place of medicine vis-a-vis -vis, um, religion because they, they link to some kind of divine knowledge in, mm. in particular ways. Uh, they often refer to some kind of antediluvian um, pan-human knowledge. So they are very, very interesting to look at. And what did you say the title of that text was? Um, it's called uh, The Book of Asaf, Sefer Asaf. Uh, again, a really interesting figure um, 
in the Islamic tradition as um, the keeper of the book of uh, Suleiman. It's a comparable text to, to the Tibetan narratives I was working on um, in terms of there being these kind of bridging uh, syntheses of, of knowledge. And so as a, a newcomer to history of medicine um, and someone that's just learning about Galen, it's been really interesting listening to the two of you talk. Um, but when I was reading your article, Revisiting Galen in Tibet, I was struck by your use of urine analysis. And um, in your forthcoming book, you use a lot of very interesting sources, which we'll talk about later on in the break. But if you could speak more about urine analysis and how this is an example that kind of neatly ties in the connections between Islam, Tibet, history of medicine, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. So in Tibetan medicine, um, one of the basic practices in diagnosis is urine analysis. Mm -hmm. But we don't find urine analysis neither in India nor in China. But it is a central practice in the Gregor Arab world. So I was thinking, oh, maybe this is an input coming from the Greco Arab world. And I was looking at um, um, some urine analysis texts, the, the early ones. Um, I found a, a really interesting Tibetan one, uh, the Dawe Gyalpo. Um, and I found, um, I was looking at the, the comparable text of Ibn Sina. And I found that they not only um, are comparable in content, but they're also very, very similar in the structure. Hmm. Whilst we can't say this is based on this or this is based on that, they're, they're clearly coming from some kind of uh, one source. So it was 2006, and I presented it in um, the International Association of Tibetan Studies conference, and uh, people were really struck by, by this. And I have to say that uh, now, after, what is it, 10, 11 years of collaborative work, um, I'm more surprised that we were surprised. Because when you look um, more deeply into what's going on in terms of interactions across Asia right. and across Eurasia, Transmissions of knowledge have been going on um, um, all the time and in all directions. So it's more about our our ways, our habits of, of thinking, as Professor Kuriyama uh, pointed out yesterday. We have a, a kind of fixed way of looking at things, that European things are European, that Asian things are, are right. Asian, and right. we don't look at the, the connections. So, um, yeah, so part of what I'm trying to do is kind of break the, the way that we think about concepts <laughs> and transmissions and ideas.
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Taylor Moore, and I'm here with Shireen Hamza and Dr. Ronit Yoeli Talalim. Earlier, before the break, we were discussing Ronit's Islam in Tibet project. We were discussing the social, cultural, and material interactions that um, Islam engendered in Eurasia, particularly in Tibet along the musk routes. Um, we spoke a little bit about Galen, an important f- figure in the early history of medicine, and um, how he arrives in Tibet. And also, we've spoken about musk, urine analysis, and basically, we've been trying to reorient how we think of cross-cultural interactions between East and West, but West becoming what we know now as uh, the Middle East or the Islamic world. So your forthcoming book sets out to do exactly this. Listeners may be familiar with other medical exchanges that we've talked about in past episodes. For example, an interview with Valentina Pugliano about Venetian physicians in the Ottoman Empire, or with Jennifer Jones about French colonial medicine in Algeria. But the Islam in Tibet project also features other figures who don't really fit that pattern. For example, we have Rashiduddin al-Tabib, from the Ilkhanid Empire, pretty much Iran, Central Asia, whose story doesn't sound very much like the kind of Mediterranean encounters that we've discussed happening in the 19th and 20th century. Could you tell us more about Rashiduddin al-Tabib? Who was he and how did he bridge multiple spheres of knowledge? So uh, when we were working on the Islam in Tibet project, we came across this fascinating figure, Rashiduddin al-Tabib, he was Jewish by birth. He converted to Islam. He was the um, the court physician uh, during the Ilkhanid uh, court. So the when the the Mongols set up court in in Iran, um, and he was also um, a very important um, political figure. We we usually tend to think of the the Mongol Empire as a a time of death and destruction and so on, but it's also a time of uh, great intercultural trans-Asian transmissions of knowledge. And Rashid Adin is a fascinating example of this. Um, he said, look, now under the roof of the Mongols, we have people from all over, from so many different cultures. Um, let us build a city of scholars here in Tabriz and bring scholars from all over the, the Mongol Empire so he brought people from from China, from Tibet, from from India. Um, there were Europeans there as well, and he said, "Let's put them all together and let them write their histories." So um, he wrote the first history of the world, where we have um, histories. Well, he started with the histories of the the Mongols, but then wrote the history of China, history of India, history of the Franks, uh, history of the Jews. Within the book of India, he has a very long narrative on the life of the Buddha. So we have, um, you know, the essence of Buddhism in in Persian and Arabic in the 13th century. Really, really fascinating. Very open um, approach to world history and to world cultures. There's also a really fascinating text that um, Vivian Lowe and Wang Yidan worked on and is part of the collection that we co-edited as part of the Islam in Tibet project, which is a, a Persian uh, text on Chinese medicine. So we have, in the 13th century, a discussion of Chinese medicine 
um, explanations of um, the, the practice and, and so on. And um, what's interesting also that he's not well known as he should have been. Yeah, we're trying to understand why. Um, so the best explanation we have for that is that um, since he was Jewish and then converted to Islam, he was disliked by both Muslims and Jews. Uh, so he's pretty much kicked out of history, but we thought it's a good idea to bring him back. Writing World History into Breeze. That's a good <laughs> book title, if there anyone out there uh, is looking. Um, so speaking of books, speaking of archival sources, um, your forthcoming book, Reorienting the Hist Reorienting History of Medicine, Encounters Along the Silk Roads, will use a unique combination of archival sources. Um, you use the Cairo Geneza archives, you use the Dunhuang archives, um, and you say that you use this melange of archival materials to provide a reappraisal of the globalized character of early medicine. So can you first tell us about these archives, um, where they're located, and then why it's unique to you know put these together, and how this is tied into our earlier discussions of reorienting how we see Islam, Tibet, uh, Eurasia, Middle East, East, West. So the Dunhuang um, collection is a is a fascinating collection that. Uh, so I've been working on the Tibetan medical manuscripts from uh, the Dunhuang collection. Um, so in the year 1900. Um, um, a cave was discovered in uh, Dunhuang, which uh, was a previously an important nexus along the, the Silk Road. Um, and so accidentally, this cave was discovered and inside uh, a few tons of manuscripts oh that were um, locked there or hidden in that cave for over a thousand years. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> so um, most of the texts there are um, Chinese and talk about and our Buddhist texts, but we also find other languages, um, Tibetan, Cotonese, uh, Uyghur. And so having talked earlier about the importance of bridging languages, looking at these bridging languages is very, very important. So um, they represent both people who stayed in Dunhuang and people who traveled through Dunhuang because it was such a it was such an important hub. So looking at the collection as a whole and this um, multilingual collection is really, really fascinating from which to um, say more about how knowledge moved. This is really the kind of the the heart of of my work. And then there are some, other branches. The, the Cairo Geniza is one of them. It was discovered around the same time, so early, well, late 19th century, in a synagogue in Cairo. Again, a kind of discarded history, which actually is the name of the exhibition going on now in Cambridge in the Geniza collection. Um, so basically, bits of paper were never thrown away but then they they were all put away in this in this room, and so through this uh, collection, through this discarded history, we can really reconstruct um, 
various transmissions. Um, and so this has been the, the key source for um, reconstructing, for example, the way that the, the Indian trade has, um, has gone through the Indian Ocean and, and to Europe. So the whole Indian Ocean um, studies won't be, would have not been the same without the, the Geniza. Um, so I'm using the, the, the collection now to, uh, to look particularly at uh, Indian Materia Medica that we find in the recipes that are found um, in the, in the Geniza. Yeah, so the, this is how I'm using the, the Cairo Geniza uh, and how that connects in the broader sense of, of transmissions uh, to, to the Dunhuang. I'm seeing so many parallels between the Cairo Geniza and the Dunhuang archive. Um, could you tell us exactly where Dunhuang was located? So Dunhuang is in Gansu province, which is part of uh, China. And yeah, there are a lot of similar uh, or, or parallels in terms of the, the discovery, um, more or less same, same years. Um, both part of the colonial enterprise, if if we um, look at it in the broad sense of, you know, archaeology and the colonial enterprise and where collections end up. Um, so, um, yeah, the uh, Oral Stein uh, um, brought a huge uh, part of the Dunhuan collection to to England. Uh, then Paul Pelio brought another huge part to, to Paris. Um, then, um, you know, the, the Russians or the Prussians came and actually focused more on Turfan. And, and so we have the huge Turfan collection in Berlin. Um, the, the nice thing, uh, um, at least today, is that it's all online. So it's been digitized. And so the, the collection is, is again, united um, because sometimes we have a, a part of a manuscript that is in Japan and the other bit is in St. Petersburg. Um, and so now, thanks to the International Dunhuang Project uh, uh, that do excellent work and are based in the British Library, it's all um, united as one big collection. And similar uh, things are happening with the Geniza collection and um, um, there's a great exhibition uh, right now um, in, in Cambridge, uh, Discarded History, that brings some of these uh, fascinating stories uh, to life. And also they have digitized a huge amount of the collection and um, so that it is accessible to, to more people. I hope that um, those fragments uh, still in private collections become more accessible over time because I think people experience this very thing doing research with the Geniza documents that, you know, you're reading a fragment, uh, say, on the Friedberg project, and it could be very possible that another part of that text is in another collection in a different city, and you just don't know. So um, I know that that Friedberg project specifically is doing great work, and so is the Princeton Geniza project. So that which um, which is also searchable, <laughs> which is just amazing. You can search through transcribed um, documents from a thousand-year-old scrap pile. <laughs> and of course, the Tyler Schechter uh, collection from Cambridge, which is now being digitized. That's great. Um, so uh, one last question to close out the interview. This has been fascinating. Um, 
what would you leave scholars of the Ottoman Empire or broadly of the Islamic world with uh, having done this long-term collaborative research with scholars, both with Islamicists and scholars of other area studies across Eurasia? Well, that's a huge question, but if I uh, need to sum it in one sentence, I would say that while scholars who are specifically working on this material have by now Uh, abandoned the the narrative that's been uh, dominant for for too long, uh, which is that in terms of um, history of medicine and in terms of um, intellectual history more more generally, that European knowledge uh, started with the Greeks and then um, kept um, by them by the Islamic world for a thousand years and then went back to to Europe. Um, so this idea that that the Islamic world kind of babysat the the <laughs> knowledge for a thousand years, um, and and ignoring the huge uh, developments and um, and really important input that is the Islamic world has brought to European cultures, uh, so it, it is really time that we abandon. Um, this this narrative and this kind of work where we look at the cross Eurasian transmissions and the the input coming from from all over um, shows that um, what developed in the Islamic world was was really a lot more than just Greek knowledge. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ronit, for talking with us today. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Listeners who are interested to know more about Ronit's work, Islam in Tibet, and also the archival sources we mentioned today can go to our website and look at links and images in our bibliography. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>